Well, good morning and welcome everybody here, everybody online. Uh, another beautiful day. I love that song. It's, it's really kind of counterintuitive for a lot of us, right? When everything's going really poorly, we don't think of praising God for it. Um, and yet, that's the God we have. The God has a purpose in everything. Uh, you know, as we're doing this series on Psalms, um, and today is Psalm 99. And Psalm 99 is, uh, there's a series of songs, 93, 97, and 99, that all start with the Lord reigns. Um, 93 is um, kind of a really immensely positive sort of psalm. You feel wonderful, you know, after reading it. And then Psalm 97 is kind of dramatic, but it's joyful. But Psalm 99, nah, a little more direct, less polished, more in your face. Uh, as far as how God addresses things. Um, but it's still full of promise. And we see that there's a declaration of God's holiness set into the psalm in three parts. So at the ends of 3, 5, and 9, it ends with, He is holy. Um, and that follows that threefold pattern that we see in the Old and New Testament, right? Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and to forever will be, right? That threefold holiness. Um, so today's message was titled, yes, the youngins and the older youngins should can go. <laughs> if you get to be, as many of you know, you get to be my age, young starts at like 30. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So today's message is titled, God Rules is Just and Answers Our Prayers. So the first two sections, God rules and God is just, um, anchors the third, God answers our prayers. Um, the, I think there's, there's like an invisible because that's put in front of those verses in the sense that because God rules um, and because we can count on God to be just, then we know when he answers our prayers, which he will do, it will happen in a positive way. And that invisible because gives us confidence and satisfaction in knowing that God will be answering our prayers and um, will do so in a just way. Um, the other part of that is, of course, God is fully sovereign. So he is capable of answering our prayers in any way that is necessary to answer our prayers. I mean, it would be pointless if we had a deity that could give us an affirmative every time we ask for something in prayer and then yet be powerless to actually make it happen, right? It would also be uh, bad to have a deity um, that would answer our prayers but do so in a way that was cruel, evil, vindictive, malevolent, or capricious. But that's not what God does. God answers our prayers because he's fully sovereign, fully capable, um, and he is just and loving in how he goes about it. And those two anchors um, make the third party answers our prayer rock solid. So the first part of this is God rules. So <laughs> there is no doctrine in the whole world of God that has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth that there's an absolute sovereign God. Um, that he is holy, fully sovereign, fully holy. Um, and he's, because he's fully sovereign, 
Nothing um, can usurp his authority. Nothing, no one can get in God's way of doing what God wants to do uh, because there's no power greater than God, right? He has complete and universal authority over all that is. Now, it's one thing to be annoyed that you can't, that you're not in charge of something, that you're not in in control of something that is going on in your life. But it really irks some people that they have no control over anything. God is in control of everything. Some people just don't like that. Um, the, um, I had a friend that used to have a t-shirt that said, there is a God and you ain't it. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, because that's what we want, right? And again, like I said, this is completely grates against our carnal human nature, right? Nobody wants a sovereign divine king. They want to be the sovereign divine king. They want to be in charge of everything that happens, and that isn't the way it works. Second, God is holy. Now, God is not holy just because of what he does, right? The, granted, he's creator and redeemer, but he's holy because he is holiness itself, right? The, remember last week when Dan was preaching, he explained that God was good, not because everything he did was good, which is true, everything God does is good, but God is goodness. He is the complete embodiment, definition of good. Well, the same thing is true of God's holiness. God is holy because he is the embodying personification of holy. Um, So the um, importance of that is that if you want to know what holiness looks like, look at God, right? And as I said before, you know, God is truth, and we often, we measure something as whether it's truthful or not against this. If it's in here, it's truth. If it's not in here, it's not truth. And we have a society today that bucks against a lot of the truth that's in here. But for us, this is truth. Well, in the same way, if we want to know what level of goodness or holiness we might have, we compare it to God. That's the perfect example of what goodness and holiness looks like. Um, Some of us probably not as good a reflection of that as we might be, especially at certain times. Um, I don't know about you, but there are times when things happen that I don't tend to act as good and holy as I should, especially in traffic. Um, All right. (laughs) So I know I hate driving in Tucson. It just drives me crazy. Anyway, I digress. Psalm 99, verses 1 to 3. The Lord reigns. The nations tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. The earth shakes. The Lord is elevated in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. So God is sovereign and holy. um, And that fact that the Lord reigns is indisputable. And even though that's true, that fact arouses utmost opposition to the unrenewed human heart. Um, the fact that God is holy, both distinctive and supreme in his holiness, and unique and demanding in his holiness, um, really is only responded to by his people who have his spirit. Right? Because our awareness of God's goodness and holiness and the expectations of that goodness and holiness dwell within us because of the Holy Spirit. So we should not be surprised that those who don't know the Holy Spirit don't have the same feelings toward a sovereign and holy God. 
shouldn't surprise us, right? Uh, now, while the rest of the world might be willing to admit that he is a god, they just count it as all the one, many other deities that we find in the world. Uh, but they're unwilling to accept the fact that he is the only god that is sovereign and holy. He is it. There are no other gods. Um, and God sees the folly in that world and laughs in disgust. So we look at Psalm 2, verses 2 to 4. The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and his anointed king. They say, let's tear off the shackles that they put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. The enthroned one in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. So much like a horse fighting against the bit in its mouth, so pointless is the fight against the goodness and holiness and sovereignty of God. Um, and yet that's what the world does. Um, and anyone who doesn't believe this great feud um, is going to have struggles in their life. But as believers, we humbly bow before God as he does his will between the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. God is sovereign. He is doing what God wants to do. Um, now, that's important for two, two ways. So, first of all, God has a right to act the way he does because he is the source of all created existence. Anything that exists, he created. So he has rule, in a sense, over that. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything else that exists is a product of his creative power. Psalm 100, verse 3, right? Acknowledge that the Lord is good. He made us, and we belong to him. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So he has an absolute right to do whatever he pleases. And it rested to him to make us or not make us. And when he determined to create, he decided what it was he would create. He would make one creature a worm and another an eagle. Right? He would make one a lowly ant crawling on a hill and another a leviathan swimming in the ocean. It was his right to create everything he created in the manner that he chose to create it. Now, it's interesting because it was by his decree that there's almost limited, unlimited variation in humankind. I mean, just look around the room, right? We're unique. We were all uniquely created, right? We have different constitutions, dispositions, temperament, uh, the appearance of our bodies, right? Some of us to be men, some of us to be women, and the great diversity of mental capacity our position upon the globe, our places and circumstances in our cities and societies that we live in, all have traces of the sovereign will of God in them. You are not a coincidence. You are not an accident. Your life was not oops, right? You were, you were born, you were created in the womb of your parent to be exactly who you are. That's pretty amazing. One of the things the world really needs to know, especially young people today, they're being told all sorts of things, and yet we know that God created them in the womb exactly as God intended them to be. Now, granted, there's, you know, your ancestors, your parents, your surroundings certainly have exerted influences, uh, but again, there are unique parts of us that are fully attributable to God. 
and no one else. And that's pretty cool. Um, now, not only do we believe that God being the creator has a right to make his creatures according to his own will, but we also believe that we have another right um, that we have acquired by our creation. That is, every creature has acquired rights from the creator's hands, but those rights are not indelible, i.e., they can be lost, right? So, for instance, every creature can claim from the creator that it should not be punished if it does no wrong against God, if it does not offend, if it's obedient to God's commands. But you and I, brothers and sisters, don't fall into that category. We have sinned. We all have sinned. And therefore, we lost that initial right to God's protection. That, and God has a right to deal with us in our disobedience any way he chooses. And that can be hard sometimes. Um, you know, when I think about it, you know, just as if you are born in a country and you follow the rules and you don't get yourself in trouble, you can pretty much do what you want, right? You can go where you want to go and do what you want to do. But if you break the laws, if you get caught and you get sent to prison, you lose your right to go wherever you want to go. It's the consequence of breaking the law. So too with God's law. We break God's law, it comes with consequence. Now, <laughs> a lot of us don't like consequence. Um, but God is an equitable God, right? He's, he's equitable and just. And so we only answer for our own sins. We don't answer for the sins of other people. You look at Ezekiel 18, verse 20, it said, the person who sins is the one who will die. A son will not suffer for his father's iniquity, and a father will not suffer for his son's iniquity. The righteous person will be judged according to his righteousness, and the wicked person according to his wickedness. So the person who sins will die. And as we all have sinned, this sentence of death is recorded against every one of us. But some of us, blessed by God, have been pardoned by him, and having been pardoned, we are no longer condemned. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's you. You have been pardoned. You are no longer condemned. You are not condemned to eternal death. Verse Colossians verses 2, 13, and 14 says, And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in degrees opposed to us. He, take it, he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. So we see that this first three verses in Psalm 99 um, is an anchor to our hope that we have a promise um, that we have God's goodwill toward us, right? God is sovereign and holy. And verse three tells us how we're supposed to respond. Let them praise your great and awesome name. So we read in Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29. So since we are received an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks. And through this, let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion and awe, for our God is indeed a devouring fire. So, awe is an interesting concept. What is 
awe. Um, I think about like a four-year-old the first time he goes to a Fourth of July celebration and sees these all these explosions of lights and sounds and colors. Um, and there's that combination of fear and awe. You know, they're like, wow, it's amazing. I also think of an example. I was, um, as many of you know, I was in the Air Force. And in pilot training, um, the first airplane you flew was a T-37. I think we have a picture of one of those. There you go, T-37. T-37 uh, was a subsonic basic trainer that was called the Tweet because it had a really high-pitched engine. We used to say it was the 6,000-pound dog whistle because um, it was really, and it was very underpowered. You know, you'd put the throttle in and wait, and then it would never you'd hear this, you know, it's like we used to joke, if you're short on power and you're on about to land, don't worry about it because you're going to land. There's no power. You're not going to, landing is inevitable. Um, well, then, of course, uh, in the second phase, we switched to a T-38. Looks like that. Sleek, after-burning, supersonic, two-engine sports car of a plane. And it was called the Talon. Much better name than the Tweet. Um, so, but I'll tell you, it was like going from a Geo to a Corvette. I mean, it was amazing. So my first flight, you know, we'd gone through all the stuff, we prepared, we'd done it in the simulator, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm there ready to go, and he says, okay, and I'm, of course, in the front seat, the instructor's in the back. And we say go. And so in, in the T-38, you had afterburner, which was pretty cool. And so you put the throttle over, notch it over, and put it in afterburn. Boom! This thing just hit. It was amazing. And we were accelerating so fast. It was like, you know, watch Star Wars when they transitioned to light speed. That's, that's what it was. It was like, holy smoke. And all of a sudden, the nose picked out on its own. And the gear came up, and the flaps came up. And I'm still, like, going, holy smokes. And then all of a sudden, he pulls back. And then we point to the sky, and we roll up about 15,000 feet on our tail and then over on the flat, and then he finally levels out and slow down. And I'm going, <laughs> that was all. It was amazing. You know, it was, it was just so over the top compared to the tweet. I was, and I, if, if, if I could own one, I would get one. Those are, they're really fun. Unfortunately, they run about $6,000 an hour to fly, so I don't think I'll get one anytime soon. Uh, but the key is that awe. Oh, that sense. And that's what we'd have with God. We're to have the sense of awe with God. And unlike fireworks and jets, our awe on God should never stop. There was a point at which I was like, oh, I got to go. For, we used to call it cloud flying. We'd take T-38 on solo flights. We'd go find clouds. And if you've ever seen the, the, the video of high flight, where they talk about it's beautiful. I mean, it, I, uh, it was amazing. But it was but you got used to it. You should never get used to the awe of God. It never ends. If, if you have gotten settled with the awe of God, you don't know God well enough because that awe should never change. So let's praise his great and awesome name. So first of all, so God rules. He's sovereign and holy, fully capable of doing whatever he pleases, and there's no one who can stop him, and everything he does is wholly lacking any nature of evil. So last week we said that God is good all the time and all the time. So we can equally say God is sovereign and holy all the time and all the time God is sovereign and holy. Number two, he is just. So the second section of the psalm is equally important. 
It's essential that we have a God that's fully capable of doing anything he chooses, yet also essential that all things he do is just. So let's start with verse 4. The king is strong. He loves justice. You ensure that legal decisions will be made fairly. You promote justice and equity in Jacob. Praise the Lord our God. Worship before his footstool. He is holy. Now, we live in a world that ridicules Christian standards uh, of living. And I must admit, there was a large time in my life that I, too, ignored Christian standards of living, thought them to be a bit prudish, and I was unwilling to follow. It's interesting, I was looking the other day, and I'm getting really close to where half of my life was a Christian and half of my life wasn't. Um, and that's kind of really a weird place to be when you look at the difference. Um, and won't get into the details, but obviously um, that's a, a big deal. So nonetheless, the standards of Christian living are those that have been given to us by God. The idea that a marriage is between a man and a woman is rejected often today. That we're supposed to keep ourselves pure until marriage. Um, that any sexual activity outside of covenant marriage is a sin is so countercultural today. I mean, you can't watch a TV show today that doesn't throw that in your face. I mean, we've gotten to the point now where, short of sports, I don't, there's very little you can watch on TV. I mean, the news is depressing, and most of the TV shows are so anti-God that it, you just can't take it anymore. The idea that we are to be honest and truthful and, and avoid any form of deception is rejected at the highest levels of our country. The, one, the idea that one is to be controlled in the use of money, the use of power, and the consumption of alcoholic drink and the consumption of food just runs against the, the current of mainstream America today. Those ideas just aren't there in mainstream America today. And the list goes on and on and on. But while many can reject the basic tenets of the Christian faith as far as how we live, rarely will you meet a person that will argue against the ideas expressed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? We are to be humble in spirit, not proud or haughty. We are to mourn for a lost world. We are to be meek. That is showing in patience and gentleness to the world around us. We should hunger and thirst for righteousness, seeking justice for the oppressed in the world. We are to be merciful because we have been shown mercy. We are to encourage peace in a world that rages against itself. Right today, there's two major wars going on and lots of little skirmishes all over the place. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount is a list of godlike attitudes. It's not a list of do's and don'ts like you find in Leviticus. This is about your attitude toward things. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount wants you to have a God-like attitude toward the world. Um, so we are to behave in a just and loving manner just as God behaves in a loving and just manner toward his world. Right? It's how the attitude we are to have. And it's really interesting because attitudes create behaviors. You start with an attitude and it becomes a behavior, right? And so if we're gonna have the right behavior before God, then we have to have the right attitude toward God and his commands. All right, we're to do all these things because God does all these things and 
when the Lord directs our lives according to these principles and we follow that direction, then we will do what is just and right. Um, if we have godlike attitudes, we should have godlike behaviors. Um, and there are those who will reject said ideas, scoff at us, insult us for what our beliefs are. But God knew that was going to happen as well. We read in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kind of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. So we should not be surprised um, or offended that our behavior is inconsistent with the world's. It's intended to be that way. The Christian walk is countercultural, right? It always has been that way. Like I said, as brethren, we live by the Word and the Spirit. Those are the two guidance what's in the Word and how the Spirit speaks to us in the Word. We're not to conform to the world, we are not to do things the way the world does it. Um, Now, one other important part um, that comes with that is what we call as being, we say God is immutable. What does that mean? That means God doesn't change. He is the same always. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not make it happen? If God was inconsistent, unreliable, impulsive or unpredictable, then we couldn't count on him to do what he says he's going to do. But that's not who God is. God is God the same forever. Always, now, and forever. He is unchanging. Therefore, we can rely on him to do good now and in the future. So God's just Good and loving nature is that second anchor to the hope we have with God's goodwill toward answering our prayers. He's fully capable of answering those prayers, and he's fully just and loving when he answers those prayers. So God rules, sovereign and holy, fully capable of doing whatever he pleases, and there's no one who can stop him, and everything he does lacks any nature of evil. And God is just, and all he does all the time, he is just and good, and we can count on that. So number three, he answers our prayers. Now, this is really the exciting part, right? The sovereign, holy, and just God hears our prayers and answers them. Psalm 99, verses 6 to 9 read, Moses and Aaron were among his priests who prayed to him. They prayed to the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them from a pillar of a cloud. They obeyed his regulations and the ordinance he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. They found you to be a forgiving God, but also one who punished their sinful deeds. Praise the Lord our God. Worship on his holy hill. For the, God, for the Lord our God is holy. Now these verses obviously remind us of Exodus, Right? Um, God answered the prayer of his people, uh, rescuing them from bondage of the Egyptians and carried them into the promised land. Um, but before we go there, I want to address verse 8. Um, this is one of those verses we don't all completely like, right? 
So verse 8 says, O Lord our God, you answered them. They found you to be a forgiving God and also one who punished their sinful deeds. Ooh, I really don't want that second half, right? I mean, remember what Dan said last week? He was talking about the Exodus and the golden calf, right? So that, you know, Moses is up on the hill getting the Ten Commandments, and meanwhile, they're having a party, made a cow, and off we went, right? So what happened? 3,000 men died at the sword, and then God released a plague on them and killed a bunch of the Israelites. God is just, right? They worship something other than God, and they paid consequences dearly for that. And we have to remember that. God punishes. He forgives, but he also punishes. He also disciplines. And most of us, I know me, I don't like that part. Um, and just, God is both the just when he punishes sin, but he's also the justifier when he forgives us. There's both parts of that, right? So we can't expect to only get God's mercy. We will get God's mercy, but it comes with consequences. And in his justice, we should expect those consequences when we don't follow his commands. Um, he is not required to remove our consequences. But all too often, we want God to pull us out of some problem we created ourselves. I don't know about you, but I prayed like this. God, now that I've sinned before you and got myself in this incredible mess, please pull me out of it with any, out any real pain or negative consequences because you are merciful and loving and don't want to see your people suffer even if it's their own fault and they deserve it. Right? <laughs> That's, I've done that, right? get myself in a situation, and I'm like, oh, man, I need help out of this. And it's like, you did it. <laughs> Why not? You know, he doesn't have to pull you out of it. And, and it's interesting because you can say, okay, Lord, I have sinned before you. I should not have done this. And he's like, you're right, and you're going to hate the consequences you're going through. But he's not required to fix anything, right? He will forgive you, but we have to deal with our own consequences. Um, so if we acknowledge that we've sinned and repent, we can get mercy. Um, and we own the consequences we get in the first place. Now, let's jump back to the more exciting part, verses 6 and 7. So the psalmist links back to the events of the Exodus, right? So Moses was summoned up on Mount Sinai. I remember all the lightning and thunders and clouds and all the stuff that was going on. You know, he goes up there, and he was the only one who could initially climb on the mountain. Right? If anyone else touched the mountain, even an animal touched the mountain, it was dead. That was the constant. Mount Sinai was a holy mountain. But that started to change, and we see this in Exodus 24. But to Moses, the Lord said, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from a distance. Moses alone may come near the Lord, but the others must not come near, nor may the people go up with him. So, now we have this interesting situation, right? We have Moses, who can actually go before God. We have 73 others that at least are allowed to go up on the mountain, but they can't go directly to God. And then we have all the people which still aren't allowed to go on top of the mountain. So we have this process where there are prophets and priests um, that represent God to Israel and represent Israel to God, right? So Aaron was the first high priest, and after a long wait, Samuel was the next prophet with the stature of Moses. Now, all of these were intermediaries, right? They prayed for the people. 
They took the people's request before God. And as intermediaries, if you wanted to talk to God, you had to go to one of these intermediaries. You would go to a prophet or a priest. And when they call on the Lord, and God would answer them, and they represent just a list of many, many, many intermediaries that we see in the Old and New Testament. Now, one might ask, since we're addressing the intermediaries of the Old Testament, where are the intermediaries of the New Testament? Well, brothers and sisters, we don't need one. Yes, it changed. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain between man and God was torn in half. And now all of us, as people before God, can go directly to God. And we can hear God's voice, and he can hear ours. You know, one of the most amazing displays of true love is the fact that you're willing to listen to someone and just listen, and not interrupt, and just listen to show them that level of respect. I used to have a chocolate lab, beautiful dog, and I knew she loved me because I could talk to her for hours and she would just listen and focus and she never interrupted. It was, it was amazing. Um, yeah, I know, I joke. The, uh, <laughs> but realize, folks, we have a God who loves us so much that he'll listen to us whenever we want to talk to him. He hears us. He focuses. Imagine that, that the creator of the universe, a holy and sovereign God, God will listen to us attentively, never miss a word that we say, never miss a feeling that we feel, and then answer in a way that is just and loving and within the boundaries of free will. Now, I'm not going to beat up that last part there, but just realize, except in rare conditions, God will never answer a prayer that requires the forcing or that violates the free will of another individual. Right? So while he may move mountains and part waters for you, he may also just answer, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, as many of you know, I've had lots of health issues, and you know, I know he could just take them away. But he said, no, my grace is sufficient. Rest in me. I will give you the ability to do whatever you need to do. And he has. I mean, if he wanted me dead, he had lots of shots. Uh, but I'm still here. So three things today. God rules. He is sovereign and holy. Fully capable of doing whatever he pleases. And there is no one who can stop him. And everything he does is holy, lacking any nature of evil. And God is just. In everything he does, all the time, he is just and good, and we can count on that. And finally, God answers. God listens to his people. He answers our prayers in a loving and just way, and we can always count on that. God, we're so grateful that you are who you are, that you are holy and sovereign, fully capable of doing all that needs to be done, and that you are just and loving, and that you will answer our prayers in a way that is just and loving. Um, and Lord, we just do that today. We just lift up all our prayers to you, knowing who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.